Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Monday, May 27th, 2019. I'm Brian McCullough. Hope those of you that have one are enjoying your long weekend. As promised, here's a sort of special bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. Nerds and tech folk have always had a special fascination with typeface and font design, and especially with the venerable Helvetica. Today we're going to talk to Charles Nix, whose foundry, Monotype, had the challenge of updating Helvetica for the 21st century with Helvetica Now. A lot of these bonus episodes are you learning along with me as we take deeper dives into certain tech topics. Well, look, no more so than this episode, because I knew absolutely nothing about this area of design going into it, so I was fascinated to learn about what goes into creating a typeface from an artistic, design, and even business perspective. And if you want to see for yourself what we're talking about here, hit up the link at the bottom of the show notes to see what Helvetica now looks like. So as I sort of said off air, um, you know, I, I feel like type is, is some sort of weird hobby or obsession uh, for tech folk. And I'm no different. I, I, you know, I've seen the Helvetica documentary and, and things like that. And I feel like Helvetica is the most famous font in the world. But at the same time, I don't really know anything about anything. Uh, and maybe some people listening don't as well. So could we just start by you giving us maybe a little history and background on, you know, where Helvetica came from and how it became so ubiquitous in the world? Sure. So if you really want to nerd out, then this is exactly where we need to begin. Please the do. nerdiest of nerds yeah. talking about the nerdiest of topics. So um, Helvetica is the sort of, uh, it's sort of the end product of an evolution of sans serif typefaces, and those are typefaces without feet. Um, so the first 300 years of typography from the middle of the 1400s to the middle of the 1900s was all about type with serifs on it. Um, at the end of the 19th century, um, experiments in sans serif typefaces began in earnest. There were like little offshoots all along the 19th century way, but in, at the end of the 19th century, people started to take them seriously as a possibility for advertising generally. Um, and they were called grotesques at the time, which, I mean, the, the origin of that word in describing sans serifs is a little bit uh, long and storied and probably beyond the kind of what we're going to talk about here. Mm -hmm. So suffice it to say, at the end of the 19th century, uh, these sans serif typefaces started to develop. But one in particular, a family that sort of evolved over the first 50 years of um, the 20th century, was Accident's Grotesque. Um, and because it was based on the sort of 19th century idea of what skeletal forms for letters should look like, it had some idiosyncrasies to it. And so two uh, designers, actually one designer and one type director at a small foundry in Switzerland called Haas, um, came up with this idea of 
creating a new grotesque, um, a typeface that sort of ironed out a lot of the idiosyncrasies of the earlier sans serifs, like accidents grotesque. Um, and that typeface was called Neue Haas Grotesque. Um, they named it after their foundry, and it was a foundry uh, typeface from their foundry, so they called it Neue Haas Grotesque. And it was available for hand typesetting, so one character at a time. Um, and this was in 1957. Um, they knew, though, that if they wanted it to really take off, that they had to partner with a machine typesetting company. So um, up north in Germany, there was a company called Stempel, uh, which manufactured typefaces for the liner type machine, which was the leading um, uh, heavy-duty industrial typesetting machine of the time. Um, so they partnered with uh, Stempel to create um, a machine version of, of Neue Haas Grotesque. And Stempel said, that's fine, we want to do this, but we need to change the name. Um, to something that sort of indicates where it's coming from, that is a little more salesy. So they named it Helvetica, uh, or renamed it Helvetica. And for the first two years of that partnership, both names were used interchangeably, but eventually Helvetica became the name of the typeface. Um, and it refers specifically to, uh, to Switzerland. Um, it right, means, the old Latin you know, the name. Swiss, or essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So... Um, that was the beginning of the beginning, um, but uh, the, the transition from hand setting to machine setting meant that they had to change the typeface slightly, so change the set widths of the characters, uh, the space on either side of the characters, and also, in some cases, the width of some characters in order to make it work in that machine environment. Um, and so began the sort of... Uh, the sort of uh, uh, discrepancy between Neue Haas Grotesque and Helvetica. So, nonetheless, um, Helvetica became an incredibly popular typeface over the next 30 to 35 years. Um, it managed to make its way into every new type technology. So, as we segued from metal typesetting into photo typesetting and then eventually photo typesetting into digital typesetting, Helvetica was always there. Um, incredibly popular and incredibly useful um, and ubiquitous. So um, that popularity sort of was about to get supercharged. In 1982, uh, slightly before 1982, um, when PostScript was beginning to be used to describe um, pages and to be, uh, to, uh, to be used to describe graphic shapes, uh, Helvetica was re redesigned uh, for use in PostScript and christened Neue Helvetica. So there's a major, uh, a major uh, breakthrough because you know what was right around the corner from 1982, <laughs> and it was that Helvetica would be on every computer and every printer that shipped for the next 30 years. Um, and that made it not only popular with designers and printers, but uh, popular with everyone. Because well, we all suddenly had access to Helvetica. Well, and I would say for our purposes, really especially popular with, with technology companies. Right. Precisely. Yeah, it was, it, they needed a sans serif. Helvetica was the sans serif. Um, and so it became just insanely popular. But that transition from, um, from early, uh, early digital into postscript was, it was rudimentary. 
Um, uh, and one of the things we did with Helvetica now, which I'll sort of get into, was fix one of the problems that developed at that juncture. Um, the, the main problem as I see it is highly nerdy, but the main problem as I see it in that, um, in that transition is that the, the digitization that took place in 1982 was done from one master drawing. And that master drawing was for a type that was meant to be used at 12 point, uh, 10 to 12 point. So text sizes. So when you blow it up, it looks like a type for text that's been blown up. And when you shrink it down, it looks like a type for text that's been shrunk down. So it carries the sort of, I mean, subtle, the distinction between those three sort of ranges of type, but um, they were something that was really inherent in the typeface at the very beginning when it was in metal, but that got stripped out of it as it turned digital. Well, it, so we've reintroduced that. Yes, actually, let, before we get into this proper, let, let, let me circle back real quick. So you're you're with a, <laughs> a, a foundry called Monotype, which is like 120 years old or something like that. <laughs> yeah, the the origins of Monotype are in the in the 19th century. Wow. Um, so yeah, we're. Uh, I, we're a descendant of that um, of that tradition, and those were two competing technologies, linotype and monotype, in the 19th century. Um, okay. But so in terms of digital, we are both monotype and linotype, but under the monotype moniker. Well, uh, as you've already, Sorry, that's a little convoluted. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is what I'm looking for. But as, uh, so I, I just laying that groundwork, um, as you've already mentioned. You guys uh, recently released Helvetica Now, so a new version of Helvetica, um, and you've already talked about why you thought it need to be re- needed to be redesigned. But first, like, is that is there a little bit of hubris there to like, okay, it, now it's time to update the most popular uh, font in the world, and we're the people to do it. Like, um, how did you guys decide to take on this this task? Well, I mean, uh, as, I, as I sort of mentioned in passing there, um, uh, Linotype, the Linotype library, which was the library that, um, that controlled Helvetica um, before it merged with Monotype, um, is now part of Monotype. So, uh, you know, it, we're, we're stewards of, um, of Helvetica. Um, it's incumbent upon us to sort of... M- bring to market the best Helvetica that, that can be. So up to this point, it's been Neue Helvetica, um, but yeah, was it hubris? There is some, but there's also the realization that it's our duty to, to fix things about it that are not quite working for 21st century designers. Okay, well, tell me what those are, actually. That's what I'm curious about. Yeah. So... Um, the first thing was the, the that single master problem that I that I talked about. Um, that for for hardcore typographers is a is a big deal because I mean if we split up the the masters the master drawings into three separate segments like we have with Helvetica now, then you're able to uh, refine the spacing and make it more stylish uh, at larger sizes, and you're able to uh, refine the spacing in order to make it more legible at really small sizes. So we've divided it into three separate masters, a micro master, a text master, and a display master. And we designed those specifically for the sizes they're intended to be used at. So at smaller sizes, the smallest sizes, the micro has really open spacing 
Um, the interiors, the letter forms are a little more open. Uh, the X height is larger. That's the height of the lowercase X, which sort of lends the visual size to the type. So um, uh, by increasing the X height, the type appears to be larger, even at smaller sizes. Um, and then increasing the stroke weight so that as the type gets smaller, it still remains substantial enough to be read. So, and those are the, that's the first thing, like just getting those size masters back into the typeface, um, the things that were stripped out uh, 35 years ago or now close to 40 years ago. Um, the next thing is that um, uh, we increased the number of, of weights. So we added, um, we added a hairline for, for the display and an extra black for the display. And we also augmented the weights on the, on the other two masters um, so that they have more extensive weight choices also. Um, those are, those are some big broad stroke things that we felt were necessary. The, um, there are some really tragic things to bring it right back home and to bring it, you know, so, sort of to a, a tech meme listener. Um, the thing that is probably most important is that the at sign, which in 1982 meant at, <laughs> um, but in, you know, in 2019 is everywhere. It's, you know, every one of us own an at sign. And it's, it shows up in our, um, our daily reading uh, in a way that we couldn't have predicted in 1982, or we could have predicted some people, three people could have predicted. Um, but uh, the at sign design in Helvetica uh, is, was pathetic. I mean, it was, it was a sad thing, a travesty, uh, especially for something that's being seen so, so often. So just as one, as Hendrik um, uh, Weber, who, who, um, championed the redesign early on, said, just for the at sign, it's worth doing. Um, <laughs> but we improved uh, a lot of other uh, characters also. Um, there are a lot of uh, currency symbols that didn't exist in the original design um, that got either, that were either not in the design or were added as the, uh, um, as the years went by. So we redesigned those wholesale so that they fit um, more with the ethos of the typeface. And then there were these characters, alternate characters that were sort of uh, incorporated and then deaccessioned as the type evolved over its first 60 years. Um, and we've reinstituted a number of those, and those give the typeface um, more range. So it can, I mean, they modulate the, the feeling of the typeface in a way that makes it, in some instances, a very different typeface. Um, the same bones and the same DNA, but um, able to speak in a slightly modulated way. So those are the those are the big things. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a it's a lot. I'm sorry. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. 
Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Well, no, no, I, I what, I, what I'm imagining, you know, part of the process is, is like, like the whole story of Helvetica is almost about the impact that technology has had, um, you know, either on the fun or what the fun has had, the impact of the fun has had on, on technology. So like how much of that went into your thinking in terms of like, you know, is it even, is it possible to like future proof a font design when you have no idea what the use cases would be? Like again, 30 years ago, no one could imagine, you know, reading on tiny little smartphone screens and things like that. Right. Yeah, no, it's not possible. Um, Things will change, you know, that we can count on that. They'll they'll change pretty dramatically um, in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, And with the the six decades that it's been around already, Helvetica has sort of proven itself sturdy enough to to withstand a lot of change. But there were certain things like, um, you know, that screens would be the prevalent means of of reading uh, most of our text or that's redundant, but um, that was not sort of in the, it wasn't in the water in, in the eighties. And now you sort of, in, in the way that, you know, web designers think mobile first, we have to think screen first and type design at this point. Um, that when it used to be that we designed typefaces for print, but now, and then it bifurcated. Uh, so you sort of, you had to pay attention to what was happening on screen, but it wasn't the primary thing. And now I think, in in a really substantial way, we think screen first with type. And is there? So, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, so I mean, in as much as um, the the typeface never never sort of looked at Helvetica as a typeface, never looked at itself as a screen first um, uh, entity. Now it definitely is. And is there, you know. <clears throat> How much thinking, as much as, you know, obviously, as you said, you can't future-proof for things, but, like, how much were you designing for the now in the sense of, well, there could be smart smart watch it, smart watch faces that we have to think about. There could be, you know, you know, 8K billboard ads in Times Square, you know, that, that are, you know, 100 feet tall or something. Like, how much um, were you trying to design for the immediate now that you could plan for? Um, in a, I mean, a fairly major way. So, I mean, one of the sort of tech things with typefaces that's right on the horizon, that's sort of almost ready for prime time, 
um, is a format for type called OpenType Variations. And it exists, and some people use it, but it's not been wholesale adopted yet. Um, it has browser support. Um, but the sort of sales channels and pricing, a lot of things about it still haven't been um, solidified. But we're designing all of our type now with the idea that it will eventually be available in this variations format. And what a variations format does is sort of uh, it jettisons the idea of buying a typeface by weight. So you would never buy Helvetica Light or Helvetica Bold with a variations typeface. You would buy Helvetica and then you would tell the typeface what weight you wanted it to be. So it's an incredible flexibility um, in, for, for users of type um, and for people who program with type. Uh, so uh, changing weights based on uh, CSS coding, conditional CSS coding, like allowing a typeface to become bolder on its own when it realizes that it's being used at a very small size. So. We've designed Helvetica now with the idea that it will eventually become a variations font. Um, so all of the structures there for it to happen, um, and it's a very powerful variations font because it's a typeface that will know how big it is, and it will know what weight it is, and it will eventually know what width it is. So there'll be a compressed and extended access to the to the typeface also. So. I'm, when I say a typeface knows what it is, it just sort of knows it's the typeface has a lot of um, a lot of potential built into it that it's not quite realizing yet. Uh, it's still an incredibly useful typeface, but it will become incredibly more useful once it becomes a variations font. So that buys it some lifetime. You, you maybe can get twenty or thirty years out of Helvetica now before you have to do Helvetica now. Now maybe. Um, the, uh, yes. my, my final question, I'm super curious about process and things like this. Cause we're always talking about like, you know, businesses and, and teams and like, what is the actual process of redesigning a typeface in the sense that like, how big is the team of people involved? How many prototypes, how many years of work? How many, do you do focus groups? Like what is, just give me a, a, a pencil sketch idea of what the process is for, for doing something like this. Well, sort of yes to all of those things. So there are probably in the in the tech aspect of this typeface um, from designer. Uh, when I say tech, I mean studio. Um, we're all using technology within our, the Monotype Studio, but within our Monotype Studio, which is about sixty people, about half of the people in the studio worked on um, Helvetica now in some shape or form. Um, about six of those were designers who were directly touching the outlines of the letters. Um, and the rest of them are people who make the work that we do as designers uh, work. Um, so it's a lot of back-end coding and testing and proofing um, that, um, that just makes the work that comes out of Monotype Studio really, you know, really great um, and bulletproof. Um, so that's the, that's the size of the team. The process is, it's, I mean, the process is really long, but, um, the actual design part of it is, is probably a quarter of that. So, um, in 20, I'd say 2014, a small group of people within the studio got together and started theorizing about what a new version of Helvetica would look like, what it needed to be, like what improvements would be made. 
um, in terms of optical sizes, in terms of alternate characters, in terms of additional characters that weren't around in, in 1982, et cetera. So they put together a document that sort of guided the process of the redesign over the next four years. And then there were the next four years involved a lot of prototypes and discussions and proofs and um, uh, more discussion um, to make sure that before we embarked on this wholesale that we were on the right track. Um, and then the team of actual designers was assembled. That's when I was tapped to be, be part of it. Um, and that was a year and a half ago. Um, and so then there was uh, a year of really intense working um, that was front-end loaded with a lot of research, looking back at previous printings, previous versions of Helvetica and all of its different technologies, ascertaining the things about those uh, different, different versions that were worth preserving, the things that we wanted to correct, um, and then the work, like the drive across country, like the 3,000-mile journey, <laughs> just get to work, like mm -hmm. make it. Um, but yeah, there's so many prototypes, especially for the smaller stuff and the larger stuff. I mean, the text we all feel very comfortable with because of, we've been looking at it for a long time. But the display stuff had to be proofed at really large scale to make sure that, like you said, when somebody's using it, you know, 20 feet tall on a billboard in Times Square that's, you know, projected from the, from the back or, you know, LED or whatever, that it looks perfect that nothing about those outlines is, is, um, causes anyone to question um, what the typeface looks like. It looks better than Helvetica has ever looked. And then at the smaller sizes, um, almost the exact opposite has to happen. Um, but at the micro sizes, the typeface has to give the impression that it's Helvetica, but it has to be able to stand up to really sort of rigorous conditions. So, um, there, there are letter forms in Helvetica Micro that look strange when you view them at very large sizes, but when you're looking at them at four point or five point or six point um, or their equivalent in pixels, they look like Helvetica, um, but much more legible. So there was a lot of proofing and um, prototyping, uh, and you know, both in print and on screen, or I should say, on screen and in print, in order to make sure all of the letter forms work. And then all of our work gets handed over to a, another team that sort of runs it through its paces. Um, they question everything that we did. <laughs> I mean, we're all on the same team, but mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it's QE and proofing and, um, and finishing that makes the typeface actually function as well as it does. All right. Seriously, last question. What, what's, what's been the response to Helvetica news so far? Um, well, Helvetica now. Now, sorry, Helvetica now. Um, I apologize. Yeah. Noya was new. Now is now. Yes. Um, the, the response has been, uh, I think we, we all sort of steeled ourselves very early on for the, um, for the idea that Helvetica is a sort of lightning rod for, for people who are super fans and for people who just, you know, hate it because it's, it's the, it's the popular thing. Um, so, I mean, I've been surprised by the sort of overwhelmingly positive response to it, um, just because I had prepared myself for a bunch of Helvetica haters to sort of surface and 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 kick rocks. Um, but 
Um, yeah, I mean, those people still get to me, obviously, but, <laughs> but, uh, ultimately it's been incredibly well received. It's, um, it's selling well and we're seeing it in use already. So it's great. <laughs> 